Hello and welcome to Shoot the Piano Player, a new way podcast. I'm your host Spencer, and with me is uh, well, uh, on his wedding day, uh, uh, there was a real tragedy. Uh, they ran out of shrimp, and now he's out for revenge on the five men who ate all the shrimp before he could get to it. Spencer, that was really creative. Like now, now I make I can totally <laughs> envision a, a you know the the Joel Torres uh, Sarah Roberts I assume wedding that'll be happening. And a bunch of super fat stoned guys in the back being like, oh, man, I think this shrimp was supposed to be at the, the catering event. Uh, it's not a big deal. Whatever, man. Those rich people that get their own money. And I'm like, what do you mean there's no shrimp? What do you mean? The- no, I spent two years in the same <laughs> asylum. And then I plan out the rest of my life. I know. Sarah doesn't like seafood. So you. Oh, yeah, that's true. Oh, man, this is a, this is a whole contradiction of, of features. Yeah, I, I am a good friend. I know that much about your relationship. That's nice. Let me let me think. Uh, what do I know about Mary? Um, she likes Daniel Klaus. Uh, that's true. She does. Yeah. All right. Uh, so this is the first in the 1968 pairing, uh, which is uh, Truffaut's The Bride Wore Black, paired with uh, Pasolini's Teorama, which, uh, Joel, you will watch at some point, oh my hopefully. God. I didn't know it was a pair with a different one. Otherwise, I would have watched it by now. I've been yeah, putting it off because you told me he's having sex with, like, babies or something like that. No, he seduces a whole family. He fucks everyone. And then he, and then the second half happens and he disappears. We'll we see what to, happens. We have to do a Pasolini at some point. That's, why, can't I just watch the Willem Dafoe movie? Um, we, uh, you know, it might count, actually. Nice. But no. Oh. Yeah, I can, yeah, I can uh, bend the rules. Uh, no, I'll watch it grumble. And, uh, yeah. Uh, okay, so, uh, bringing on some, uh, uh, we have a special guest. Uh, he is, I guess, uh, kind of like our go to expert with, like, crime fiction. And The Bride Work Black is based off of a very famous book, which, uh, the guest wrote an excellent piece on the Pink Smoke about is, um, Returning all-star uh, Chris Funderburg. Hey, guys. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for coming back, especially after the time Spencer basically told you that he would kill you if he ever saw you again. Yeah, well, I'm here to call his fucking life. bluff. No, I'm one of the only people who has recorded in person with Spencer. I have oh, wow. been to Spencer's HQ and sat there in person and recorded with them. I'm going to guess I'm the only guest who's ever done that with you. Isn't that true, Spencer? That is true. You're also. I met Freya story. in person. I'm the only one who got attacked by Freya. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and she's only calmed down uh, maybe five percent in the like three years. <laughs> did did uh when when you were there did uh Spencer do the whistling belly button trick uh, because he keeps talking about it and I don't believe him. That he can do whatever it entails. He won't even tell me what it's about. He he showed me it all. Oh no! All there is to be shown. I saw. Well, that. Uh, I have I have moved in the uh, past year or whatever <laughs> since then. Okay, so technically there's a new place. Yeah. 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 Right, good. Are you still? Are you like still down in in Dover? Are you still in Delaware? Yeah, I'm, I'm like maybe ten minutes away. Okay, north or south. Yeah. Did you move uh, so, closer to my parents' house or further away? Is the question. Um, south. I'm 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 closer to Sus- Sussex County. You're headed straight out, out of town. 
<laughs> You'll be in Maryland before too long. Oh, Maryland. No oh. offense, Aaron Gambrell, if you ever hear this episode. She'll be uh, upset. Uh, well, she's going to be on a blow-up episode, which, thank God, I I, I, I need uh, extra help on Antonioni. Also, Chris, thank you for picking in, in uh, Antonioni, because uh, I won't have much to say on episode. I, I know that much ahead of time. Uh, my pleasure. I, I honestly can't remember what I picked at this point. I mush-brained. So just just line me up uh, like a month beforehand. Get me back in line whenever we're doing it. I am I'm very bad be, at remembering. It's somewhere down the line. Uh, but, was uh, it yeah, was it the Eclipse I picked or Red Desert? It's got to be one of those uh, two, right? Eclipse. Okay. The best one. Uh, sure. <laughs> after, uh, La, after La Ventura, I'm like, I don't know if I want to go back to him. Yeah, I don't like La Ventura very much. I think that's fair. I think I think I, that I, you know. I, hey, we're talking about Truffaut tonight. You know who hated Antonioni, Mister Francois uh, Truffaut. Really know, hated him. You know, really guy. hated him. His quote is uh, something like, "I can't stand him. He thinks he is the psychologist of women because he has them stand there and look blank for hours on end." <laughs> quote is something like that. I didn't look it up because I didn't know I was going to have to uh, badmouth Antonioni. So. That's just going by I mean, my heart. What I had in my heart about Truffaut hating Antonioni. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it's not inaccurate. Yeah, no. I mean, of the of the two Truffaut that we watched for the podcast, like he puts this. He, he seems to actually care about his women characters outside of them being uh, stunning or you know whatever. Uh, I mean, that this movie, of course, but I think that in. Um, well, what was the other one? Oh, the soft skin. Yeah, soft skin. Yeah, like the the wife character who could just be a whatever side character getting what she gets to do at the end of that one. It it feels feminist, and that's cool. <laughs> but I can't yeah. say that about Antonioni. Antonioni, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, uh, Joel, before I told you we're doing The Bride Were Black, had you ever heard of this movie or the book or anything? No. Really? Why? It's it's not famous. It's one of his harder movies to, to see. It's sort of, it was almost like one of his lost movies for a while. When I was getting into French New Wave, this is one that you had to really work to see, you know, 20 fucking years ago. Is, is it be, you thought I'd, I'd heard of it because I'm I'm a slight Tarantino head. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. as as we've discussed already, he did he pretended not to have seen this movie before. So yeah, yeah which is the most ridiculous lie. Mm-hmm. You know why I think he does that? I I think that he's really happy to admit his influences when he thinks it's a film or a filmmaker that he can push around, like when it's you know. Uh, Twisted Nerve or uh, uh, Castellare, when it's somebody that he mm. thinks won't undermine him, that he's more important than, and he knows it in his heart, whereas he dodges comparisons to people like Scorsese and Truffaut, where he knows that any comparison to them will not be to his advantage. So I think he plays dumb with the really obvious influences. Like, he never talks about 
stealing the bit from American Boy, from Scorsese's American Boy for Pulp Fiction. And he denies having seen Bride War Black, which is ludicrous. The Veronica Green scene in that movie is so similar to the Michael Lonsdale scene in this film. You know, right down to the little kid there, and the kitchen is laid out the same way, and the house is laid out the same way. It's just, it's an absurd lie, is what I would say about that. <laughs> Yeah, uh, uh, Joel, uh, you're more of a Tarantino fan than than I am. Do you uh, uh, think Tarantino has seen this? Yeah, uh, the the reason I believe Tarantino would have seen this is because, like he said, he he worked at a video store and he watched everything, and then he's obviously influenced by Godard. Although I couldn't tell you why because I'm not familiar with Godard, but you know, you you don't name your company a band apart or or what what was it? It is yeah, band, band apart. Yeah without having seen the stuff. I mean, did he... He also supposedly, according to his own uh, testimony and own version of it, just totally made the name of Eric Romer at Romer at this video store is the other big French New Wave connection, is that he just really just sold every customer in the world on Romer, which is, you know, strange knowing where, what Romer is and, and what Tarantino is. Yeah, but I don't, I mean... If if he's got the brain like I do, you just you, maybe you just don't remember every single like there are definitely some even some Italian uh, new wave stuff or not Italian new wave uh, Italian neo realist stuff that I'm like crazy about that I just like I watched this movie you know kind of things like that but yeah I don't I wonder if yeah the, the, he's it's, very it's really careful to craft the public perception of him and his influences. He's very, very careful about what he wants to be associated with. And I think that he, one of the ways in which he dodges complicated criticism is by refusing to compare himself to complicated directors and refusing to cite complicated directors as his influences. He'd much rather pick some utter piece of shit spaghetti western and say, that's my influence than talk about the big guns that clearly had an impact on him. Yeah, it's all his choice if he wants to represent himself that way. And, uh, yeah, I, I, but I don't see why he wouldn't lift up movies that were lesser known. Uh, I mean, he is, you know, probably a lot of these things that are completely unknown, but like things that are even by well-known directors like The Bright or Black like, you, he could have just said that, like, well, for some reason you can't really get this movie anywhere. You know, I, I can hear it in my voice. Yeah, but but it's also, there's stuff like him dedicating Reservoir Dogs to Lionel White instead of Stanley Kubrick or Jim Thompson. You know what I mean? Like, it, that movie is influenced by Kubrick's movie, not by the fucking book, but instead he cites the Lionel White novel. I think that's just what he does, is he's never going to say compare me to Kubrick, he's going to say, compare me to Lionel White. And he just does it consistently enough that it's a pattern. And I don't, and I don't know that he has any interest in lifting up films in that way. He's very much got the crate diggers, record store, vinyl nerd mindset of wanting to be the guy who's heard of the thing you've never heard of. I don't think he celebrates cinephilia in that way i think that if everybody moves to saying the great silence is one of the best spaghetti westerns you're never going to hear him talk about it ever again 
Well, I'm my only argument against that is that, you know, he does he has that theater in Los Angeles that he runs and he, he shows a bunch of the this the grindier stuff that he yeah. likes. So Yeah, that's true. I I don't think he's fully like I, I, I also get that nerd mentality. And you know what? He got he got rich and famous enough where he never had to grow out of it. <laughs> the rest of us are like eh. <laughs> I don't really care if anyone thinks it's cool or not. Yeah. I like it. Would you like to like it? You may. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, it is a very adolescent sense of cool. But uh, back to the Ride War Black. Uh, Anyways, I've never heard uh, of it. <laughs> okay. Do you think um, Kate Bush's, uh, what is it called? The wedding the wedding dress video is based on that? What is that called now? The wedding party? Now I'm going to, uh, that's obviously based on this. Hold on. What, the wedding list. Kate Bush's The Wedding List. Do you think she's seen Pride War Black? It's a complete. It's a video completely based on I, this movie. I think my girlfriend said something about this the other day. Yeah. <laughs> ask her. It's 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 undeniable. Is the uh, quote unquote joke I was making the humorous mm-hmm. reference? Yeah, so Spencer, what did you want to talk about with Pride War Black? How do you want? What yeah. angle do you want to take? How do you want to dig um, into it? I guess I want to, well, first say that I read the book in uh, November and December. I'm, I'm a slow reader in general. Yeah, me too. And I get distracted easily. But, uh, yeah, I, I read the book. I really liked it, except for the parts with the cop at the end of each segment, where, like, at first, like, okay. You didn't like Detective Wanger? <laughs> no, I didn't. It got a little old in the and uh, uh, I said on Twitter like a few weeks ago, not relevant, but um, uh, that uh, Truffaut took all the things in the from the book that you can make cinematic, but then he cut out all the he cut out the terrible ending, and he cut out and he just made it like work for uh, work for film where uh, if he kept everything from the book, it just it would be a lesser film maybe not not bad per se but it just wouldn't be as good carnell woolrich when you talk about when people talk about the difference between a genre writer and a quote-unquote real writer what they're talking about is carnell woolrich whose stories frequently are half-baked and have endings like this one and have a lot of bad writing in them and don't feel carefully or thoughtfully put together. And when you see what Truffaut does with it, he has narrative solutions that are incredibly simple and easy. Like Woolrich's book is obviously in need of fixing, and it's incredibly easy to fix, right? And I think that that's what people mean when they want to confine a writer like Woolrich to like a genre ghettoization, categorization, that that is that that is what they they mean is that he's not he's not a real writer, you know, and um, when you get a real filmmaker and a real artist like Truffaut, they're very, very, very easily able to solve the problems of Woolrich's book, which are very readily apparent. The completely ludicrous ending, uh, you know, the unnecessary detective stuff. He even has a much better sense of what a good scene is than Woolrich, of where to come in scenes, where to go out of them, what should be delivered as exposition between two characters and dialogue, and what we should see happen live 
you know, rather than have the doorman tell the story of this lady coming by, we see this lady coming by, you know, like that's an obvious simple way. And he comes into scenes much later. A lot of the scenes, uh, the, the film has a huge amount of fidelity to the book, apart from the changed ending and losing the detective character. And a lot of the time you see him come in much later and leave much earlier in scenes. Things are about, take about his quarter long, and part of that is compressing it for the movie, but it's also just understanding what powers a scene and what drives a scene and what the dramatic tension is and what's of interest and even what are evocative details. He's just so much more efficient. And the big decision to not have it be a mystery, to get the backstory out of the way early, right? That's, we'll, we'll hear a lot when talking about this film, that it's a Hitchcock homage. And to me, it's hard to identify how it's a Hitchcock homage. I'm not really sure what it means with this film. But one of the big things is, you know, Hitchcock says the MacGuffin's got to be destroyed halfway through the movie. It can't be a secret that's revealed at the end of it. You've got to make it irrelevant halfway through. There's a box. You don't want the audience in anticipation of what's in the box. You want to destroy the box and make the narrative powered by something else entirely. Woolrich's book is powered by, why is she killing these guys? And then you get to the end, and it's fucking idiotic, right? <laughs> the whole thing is just dumb. Yeah. And then there's a twist right after the reveal. So you have a twist on top of the reveal. Truffaut quickly, uh, much earlier, gives you a sense of what happened and then fills in the details slowly on it and then has a twist at the end, right? That's completely of his own invention, a final scene that's completely of his own invention. And that is sort of the Hitchcockian approach as opposed to the mystery writer's approach to it. And I think that it's just, you know, even the final, uh, the problems that one might have with this movie and Bride Bore Black was really poorly received when it was made and Truffaut himself always expressed a lot of disappointment in it. I think a lot of his disappointment is based on the miserable shoot that he had. But the one thing in this book uh, or the one thing in this film that is not like the book, the book is not very suspenseful. You know, it's it's weirdly not constructed like suspense scenes. You know, there's not a lot of tension about what the bride is going to do. And basically the plot is just there's a woman and she's going through a list of five people that she's going to kill. And so it's just the book is a scene of she shows up, cases the place, meets the guy and kills him. Detective. Then it moves on to the next guy. Right. And it does that five times mm. in the movie. Uh he actually makes a set piece for the final scene where she's in the prison, where you ask, where the audience asks, why is she there? What is she doing? What is the plan? Oh, I think that that guy is there. This must be what the plan is and building the tension. It's constructed cleverly like an actual suspense scene, which none of the other scenes are. Because that's the way they're written, because Woolrich doesn't really write suspense. He's a, he's, he's a writer with no command, you know? He just isn't necessarily in control of what he's doing. What makes him an interesting writer or not an interesting writer is related to other things. It sounds like I'm being incredibly hard on him, and I am. He's not a favorite of mine. Uh, but he's unquestionably, there's unquestionably interesting things about him. He's unquestionably a writer that's worth reading. Um, although I would not tell people to read to read this book. This is, this is one of his soggier books, I think. And I'm not sure the film 
completely gets uh, away from that sogginess. This is a weird movie, and this is a movie I really like, but I like it for its strangeness more than I like it for its mastery, you know, is what I would say about it. That this is a movie that that may or may not work completely, um, but it's still fascinating to me. In general, with Truffaut, I agree with the idea that when Terence Rafferty says, what you hear in Truffaut's films, especially the early, exciting early ones like 400 Blows and Jules and Jim, is not the voice of a master, but of a particularly enthusiastic and generous student. And I think that Truffaut's movies are interesting for how you can feel him learning and experiencing in them. There's something about them that they have the enthusiasm and excitement of, uh, of a student. But I think also in the human way of a student, not just a student in terms of education, but somebody when they're 20 learning what the world is really like and what their place in it is. You know, and he made this movie when he's fairly young. He, I think he's born in 35, so he's, what, like 33 when he's making this movie. That's incredibly young, you know? And he's coming off of having done the Hitchcock Truffaut book. This is the first movie he makes after it. So he's trying on a new style, too. He's trying to learn what it means to be a Hitchcockian-type thriller director while staying himself, you know? And I think that a lot of his work feels like you can feel Truffaut himself muddling through it. And I think that's what's good about it. And I also think it's why he's sometimes puzzling to people and why sometimes people don't get him. I think that's also why it's easy for people to understand the appeal of 400 Blows in which he's channeling a youthful enthusiasm, right? That's a perfect match for that material. Um, when there's a, a like, uh, older youthful malaise to two English girls or Bride Wore Black, it's much harder for people to understand it. It's, the, it's like it's watching a student who can't get his shit together to graduate, is what I would say it becomes like watching with Truffaut. Or later in his career, even like a graduate student who's on track to become an incredibly bored, dissatisfied professor. You know, he's on the way to becoming the character he imagined in the soft skin, you know? Yeah, okay. What was I even going to say? <laughs> I don't know. You were going to say, Chris, keep talking. You can do a monologue for hours. That's what the people demand. Yeah, no, do you guys think this is a Hitchcockian movie? This is my question for you. Do you watch this and you go, ah, yeah, I get why everyone says this is a Hitchcock pastiche? In terms of the style, yes. In terms of the content, uh, not really. The style? What's a single, like, Hitchcock-y type <clears throat> shot in this movie? Well, I, I, I'm a Hitchcock novice. I've only seen, like, the, the basic bitch, like, highlights. Yeah. And so, like... Under Capricorn, um, Marnie, <laughs> yeah, exactly. all the best. Mm. Um, uh, murder, all the good <laughs> ones. <laughs> murder is so fucking offensive. Have you seen Murder? You will you will hate Hitchcock after watching it. I guarantee it. You should watch Murder. <laughs> um, no, it's just it's just one I like to have uh, back pocket as a reference to be like, hey, I know I know some obscure Hitchcock. You should you should but, uh, you should watch it, Spencer. You will never forgive him for it. I bet. Oh, 
is it uh, as bad as um, uh, not having the, the black actor on the poster of Lifeboat? Uh, it's similar. It's very similar in what it identifies as yucky villain qualities. You know, the big the big reveal of what makes him a villain, I think you will be uh, very unhappy with, as any reasonable person is. Oh, okay, interesting. But uh, the Hitchcock touches with, like, to me, just like, again, just like the basic bitch stuff, like, uh, like the like the um the end segment where you get like the highlight of uh of the knife and her hiding a knife and her trying to be sneaky yes. and like you get these like these uh, these uh, very specific suspenseful close ups where it's like you know the classic like um like you you know the bomb is under the table the whole time yeah and you don't know when it's gonna go off and like that's like a perfect. Ex- like not sure perfect execution, but it's a great execution of like that idea. Yeah. And there's like there's some other moments like that. But that's too, why I mentioned that scene is it's the one it's the scene Truffaut invented and it's the one really thrillerish scene. But I think I think it's a weirdly not tense movie. Do you watch do you watch this movie and feel like, oh no, she's gonna kill the guy? What I find strange about this movie is it's like a, re- a bunch of regular Truffaut scenes where someone just dies at the end of the scene. It's very strange. It's it is it's like soft skin, but if that ending happened in every single scene, I feel I feel like, I do feel like the opening kill. You know, before the first person dies, they it does try to play it as like oh mysterious, where's she going, and like this man's relationship. But we know this woman's looking for him, and mm-hmm. and uh, definitely the music follows through. I mean, they, it's Bernard Herrmann, so it's you know. He can't help it, I guess. Right. Um, but. But I don't think Herman's score after, is very Hitchcocky. I think it's very generically Bernard Herman. Yeah. Well, let's see. I'm not. I'm not as familiar. So yeah. maybe everything I'm hearing, I'm going to be like, is that Hitchcock? No. Yeah. Well, have you ever heard yeah. that? Have you heard the score for Fahrenheit 451? No. It's mm-hmm. it's like a Vertigo psycho homage in a way mm-hmm. that you hear it and you go, oh. That's like Bernard Herman doing Psycho. It's also Bernard Herman, and so with this one, when you compare it, it feels like any number of you know, like Jason and the Argonauts, you know, just any number of like Herman type scores. I see. But I, what I was going to say is, after the first kill, basically when the, the man falls off mm-hmm. the balcony, uh, that's when it's like, oh, okay, no, never mind. I guess this isn't going to be that much of a Hitchcock going on. And I think yeah. the rest of the movie from that point, I wouldn't compare the two. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, there's not really, like, uh, there are probably other, like, specific moments where it's, like, it feels kind of Hitchcock in, but, uh, yeah, it really is just the end sequence and, mm. yeah, that's really it. I can't really pinpoint anything else. Like, the soft skin has more, like, Hitchcock, um, touches to it i love the and way this, this movie ends by the way <laughs> sorry the way this one ends yeah yeah i agree because because that uh, i hey listener if you haven't watched this movie oh, man it's it's difficult to see this but you should probably watch it but yeah, i don't know if i want to say what happens at the end <laughs> i know it's an old movie but yeah i, I think I, it's because, fine because too, i didn't know anything yeah. about it i was like so pleasantly surprised yeah 
But it's also, that's what I mean is that it's, <laughs> he has narrative solutions to Woolrich's problems that are so superior and clever that that final scene does make me go, he should have just written his own thing from scratch is what I feel like. But he was very, always very hesitant to do that as a filmmaker. Uh, he, he always wanted to adapt books uh, and when he didn't, it had a tendency to be incredibly autobiographical, like the Antoine Donnell series or um, Day for Night uh, or even The Green Room, you know, uh, where where it's, you know, a virtuoso obituary writer, you know, um, it's it's very strange that he never tried to write his own thriller. You know, that he never tried to do his own from from the floor up. Uh, I guess he did at the end of at the end of his career uh, with like Woman Next Door and Confidentially Yours. And those are those are pretty bad movies. Those are pretty bad yeah, movies. So I thought maybe... myself skin was a thriller, you know, because I kept going, when is this lady going to dump this idiot? Yeah, <laughs> I'm thrilled. <laughs> well, that's movie. Soft Skin is like a twin movie to this one. They both have the same, um, the same the director, obviously, the same cinematographer with Raoul Coutard, who shot a lot of Truffaut's movies. But they also have the same screenwriter in uh, Jean-Louis uh, Richard, um, who wrote Soft Skin as, as well um, with Truffaut. And I think a lot of the same things in the same editor, editor Claudine Boucher, uh, who edited a lot of Truffaut's films. But it's it's a lot of the same creative people were imported from Soft Skin for this movie. And it's it's interesting to compare them. They only have one movie between them too, right? Yeah, Fahrenheit 451 is the only one in between them. Are any of the shorts in between them? No, Fahrenheit 451 is the only one in between them, I think. Um, so it's, he has a tendency to constantly be instantly retrospective and want like a redo on what he's just done. Uh, and you can see when Bride War Black was incredibly poorly received, he turned around and immediately the next year made Mississippi Mermaid, which is based on Waltz into Darkness, another Colonel Woolrich story. He like immediately wanted a do-over on it. And in some ways, I feel like Bride War Black is not a do-over on soft skin, but somehow an attempt to re recreate it after the, the middling experience of Fahrenheit 451, which was not... Uh, which was mixed, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a, a big failure. It wasn't, you know, very well received. Um, I think Bradbury liked it, but I think in general, it was just not a great experience for him. So he immediately goes and tries to redo the soft skin in some way, but with like his Hitchcock lessons, he's just been taking for a year, you know, in the interview with Hitchcock. And I do, I really, really love soft skin. Soft skin is probably my favorite Truffaut, um, but I never would have thought of it as a thriller. And in fact, I've always hated that final scene in it because it it just felt too tacked on to me. But I wonder, I wonder how I would feel about that now. It feels like too easy of an ending to have her kill him. You know, it just feels like, yeah. especially the older I get, um, violent solutions to narrative problems become less and less interesting to me. It's just really easy to end your story by having everybody fight and kill each other, you know, to sort of exercise the dramatic uh, work by having it be, and then they all die, you know, or he kills the guy or she kills the guy, 
you know, and I felt like that was the weakness to soft skin, which I'd felt, which I is obviously a very tender uh, movie, but it also has the same issue, not issue with the soft skin. The other way it's connected to soft skin is they're both movies that are about male patheticness, right? Mm -hmm. That they're very much about um, what it means to be a pathetic dude. Uh, and and a dude who women still like, who seems like sort of respectable in some way, but there's this tangible quality of patheticness. Truffaut, who was a famous womanizer in his life uh, and had dated uh, Jean Moreau uh, and then made this movie with her, which is another thing to get into. I can't imagine making a movie with your ex-girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And Jean Moreau was the ex-wife of Jean-Louis Richard, the screenwriter, which makes it doubly weird. You know, um, they, the, that's the, the father of her only child. And, you know, and he had been married to her before they were like famous, before they were all all famous. I guess she was probably a stage actress at that point, but certainly, you know, early, early on. But Soft Skin and, and Bride Wore Black are definitely, uh, Truffaut as a womanizer has a lot of bouts of womanizer's self-pity. You know, that's basically what The Man Who Loved Women is about is, I love women, I want to date them all, oh, it makes me such a jerk to be a skirt chaser. And you see a lot of that in this movie and Soft Skin, where it's about trying to find happiness in women and realizing it's making you uh, a bad person. It's like self-pitying, but it's it's also a self-interrogation. It's like, how do you define what's pathetic in a man, you know? And I think that's especially what Bride War Black is about, where much more in the book uh, than in the book, she's doing like cause cosplay to seduce them. You know, it's almost like a, a, a previous version of talking about movies that were influenced by it of promising young woman or something where she's putting on wigs uh, and pretending to be the man that's exactly what each of these men want so she can kill him so that she can kill them that she's literally dressing up as their fantasies in some way and presenting herself as a fantasy and it reveals just like the pathetic lives that these bachelors are leading in some way um which I think is, you know, ties it to the soft skin very tight. Even when I say pathetic, it's very not judgmental. He's very sympathetic to the patheticness of these men, is what I would say about him, too. Uh, but that ties it very tightly to soft skin and Bride War Black, uh, because that, along with The Man Who Loved Women, are are the films where he most clearly exploit, explores that idea. And Man Who Loved Women obviously stars... Um, the, the guy who plays Fergus in this movie, um, uh, Charles Denner is the same guy. So that's another connection between it. Um, (laughs) I was going to say, assuming that he thinks that if these pathetic characters, these womanizer characters deserve some sort of punishment, he's, he's probably being sympathetic knowing that he is going to kill off this, um, representation of his own psyche in each of these, or at least these two movies, you know? Yeah. Like, oh, they're terrible, but we know they're terrible, and don't worry, somebody, somebody's gonna kill us like we deserve it. I mean, uh, you know... <laughs> yeah. It's more also, there's the line in this movie of, we felt guilty, but at the same time, we all felt innocent. And I think that that's the feeling that he's wandering around with it. Again, I'm... 
Truffaut is not a master filmmaker. I think a lot of what happens in this movie is him trying to feel things out, that he's working by feeling things out more than anything else. And the reason he wanted to adapt this book, again, the Hitchcock connection seems obvious with Rear Window, that Cornell Warwich also wrote the short story that Rear Window is based on. But uh, Truffaut talks about reading the novel, which he keeps calling a William Irish novel. And I can find no evidence that was published under the name William Irish. I think it was published under Cornell Woolrich. Uh, The only version you can find, or that I could find, where it was published under the uh, William Irish pseudonym of of Woolrich was the tie-in book with the Bride Wore Black poster on the cover. That one's listed as William Irish. I have no idea why that is. I don't know if Irish had become just the more popular name in France, and so he was doing it that way. But he read this book um, during the during the occupation, uh, and it was like his parents, his mom had a copy of it, and he was like not supposed to read it. And he had read this book when he was uh, a teenager, when he was a young man, probably a preteen, and it had had this sort of mysterious effect on him of these sort of adult dark things happening in the world. And I think he's trying to channel that feeling with this film as much as anything, that he's he's interested in living in that feeling that he remembers from the book more than he's interested in the book itself. And I think that's also what's swirling around with it. I don't think he comes to things with a tightly gripped sense of style or philosophy or themes. I I think he's always searching. He's a filmmaker who's searching, and you can feel him searching in his work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and part of that is why I like Truffaut, because every time I watch a new one, I'm never sure what I'm going to get exactly. Yeah. And it's like, uh, like, it's a mixed bag because he's always like experimenting on some level, but yeah. I also like that. I also like that. Uh, um, just like the the constant approach of him just trying to figure out what it is he wants to do, and yeah. it sounds like he, even by the end he couldn't figure out what he wanted to do. Yeah, he's constantly trying on styles that don't fit him well. He's he's constantly trying on. Uh, different approaches that that don't that fit awkwardly on him. He never found a narrative instrument in harmony with his voice, apart from criticism, apart from his critical writing. I'm always surprised he didn't become a novelist because I think he would have been a better novelist than a filmmaker. But he also had so much success so quick with 400 Blows and, and to a lesser extent, Les Mistons, that I think there's just no turning back at that point. I mean, overnight, he's the most important filmmaker in the world. And it's very hard to figure out what to do from there, especially when your first movie is a very uh, gentle uh raw and sort of aimless autobiographical film about your own youth in which you're working with a child actor and and making your own rules and part of the idea is that you're rebelling against the the French union system and making your own way and doing all these things that you've been told you're not allowed to do as a filmmaker after you break those rules you can break them for like another couple years but it becomes stale very quick. The same thing happens, you know, by the time of soft skin, you 
can't, it's not enough to have jump cuts and film on the street anymore. You know, it's not, that's not enough to be interesting. You see the same thing happen to Godard where radicalism becomes the new norm so fast and then he gets completely lost. You know, I think Truffaut retreats into a more classical style and that's certainly what he's looking for in Hitchcock by the time he comes to this movie in the late 60s. 68's obviously uh, a very important year in French uh, history. Um, he, he sort of not retreats into Hitchcock, but he goes the opposite direction from Godard, who goes into total, you know, mush-brained student radicalism type filmmaking and ideas. He goes into classic standard adult contemporary type stuff, you know? And uh, looking at the, uh, where, uh, where uh, this uh, is in his uh, career... And this is around the same time as Stolen Kisses, which is one I never hear anyone talk about. Yeah. And there's probably a reason behind that. It's fine. It's it's probably the worst of the Antoine Duanel series, which is why you don't hear about it much. It's it's good. It's it's another thing where he's right at a moment where he doesn't know what the hell he wants to do. And these, I think, the run from Fahrenheit through Mississippi Mermaid, a lot of people look at them and go, whatever he was doing there was not the right thing. That he's really flailing in some way. And Stolen Kisses being the weakest of the the Duanel series, um, think can confirms that, especially when he does Wild Child in 1970, and that's so good that it's really easy to locate that exact midpoint with Wild Child where he sort of goes all the way down, hits that midpoint, and then comes back out as something else in some way. And then basically for the goes on another great run where he's very that's very different from the early run after that, where Bed and Board to English Girls, Day for Night, Story of Adele H. Uh, and I think Small Change is next, and yeah, Men Who Loved Women, I think that's the order. Those are, that's a really, really good run there, um, as opposed to going into The Wild Child. So I think that's why you don't hear about Stolen Kiss as much. But it's good. People like it, I think. Okay. You know, I think you got four of them to choose from. One of them is going to be the, the least of them. Uh, so, Joel, since you uh, had the least experience with this movie, uh, what, what for you doesn't work in the movie? Uh, what doesn't work in the movie? Yeah, what does not work? Well, I I don't feel like I can necessarily fairly rate anything uh, when it comes to script due to the fact that the only version of this movie that I could get was a dubbed version. So, um, but uh, honestly, I I really enjoyed the dub. I, I I think I still would enjoy you know French reading subtitles better, but. Um, it wasn't like overly cheesy or like a. You know, I, I always think of Suspiria when I think of, like, this is a silly dub, but I'm... There was something like, in the middle. How awful. Yeah, that kind of thing. <laughs> hey, why don't you close it? Yeah. No, Being buried alive, what a terrible thought. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's so good. Was it, um, that, so... Was it that? It did, is the weak part of this movie that Jean-Claude Brialy looks so much like Ad Rock in the Body Moving video? 
Uh, that is probably no. I didn't. <laughs> Just I looks 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 like a ridiculous Beastie Boys character in a turtleneck. That didn't bother you. I I can't unsee that now. <laughs> it's exactly what he looks like. Anyway, uh, what bothers me is that I didn't get to see a scene where uh, our our main actress uh, had to seduce that bald guy because. <laughs> That 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 would have been uh, going somewhere compared to everyone else looked relatively clean. Yeah. Uh, but no, I I don't have strong criticisms for the movie. Mm. I mean, on Letterbox, I give it four out of five. Um, and I I think that I'm surprised that people aren't talking about this movie more and like there's not like a contingent of of like super fans out there like where's the blu-ray all this other stuff because i have the spanish blu-ray but i think that's kind of it it's yeah. it seems to have rights issues i'm not sure what the deal with it is because mm-hmm. mgm released a a dvd of it at one point but it's something that was very hard to see for a long time i remember when i did a jean moreau series when i was still programming a repertory theater that I really wanted to include this in it, and that it was a giant pain in my ass to get a print, although I cannot remember the details of it anymore. I just remember it being like, you're fucking kidding me, I can't get Fried War Black being one of my, uh, although I I believe we ended up getting it ultimately. It was just one of those things that I I agree with you, Joel, that it's, it's strange there's not more people being like, hey, this is great, this is this is an interesting film by an interesting filmmaker. I feel the same way about Mississippi Mermaid too, which is the other obvious thing to pair it with because it comes the following year and it's Belmondo and Deneuve and it's 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 a movie that's as a thriller is probably better than this one. It's probably a better movie although I think the casting makes it impossibly uh flawed. You know, I just don't, I don't think it can get over its casting, Mississippi Mermaid. It's also the problem of Truffaut takes a while to understand that he can't do America. Shoot the Piano Player is based on David Goodis. Fahrenheit 451 is obviously a very American book and author. Bride Were Black, Mississippi Mermaid. These are his, all of his, with the exception of Shoot the Piano Player, these are almost all of his early failures are him trying to do American stuff. And he has a quote uh, that I was thinking about that I wasn't able to find and get the exact quote, but he has this quote to the effect of, when I started my career, I thought I was just going to make all of these film noirs and crime novels into movies. But what I realized quickly is that I don't like these people and don't like spending any time around these characters. And I think it it took him a while to understand there's a difference between the movies you love and the movies you're capable of making and the art you like and the art that resonates with you enough for you to make your own art inspired by it. I just don't think he's a guy who can be Jacques Becker or Jean-Pierre Melville and make movies about dudes running around with guns. You know, make movies about murders and con men and stuff. Mm-hmm. He just doesn't have that in him. And I especially think he can't tr- 
translate the very American flavors of things to France. I think that that there's something fundamentally wrong with Mississippi Mermaid uh, because of that. And I also think, you know, Shoot the Piano Player works because he just runs roughshod over that book. He just could not give one single fuck about what that book is and just does whatever he's going to do. So that's why Shoot the Piano Player is good. This is like the halfway point where he acts with a lot of fidelity to the book, but still can't overcome the book in some way. Although, again, I really, really like this movie. So it sounds it sounds like I'm a negativist, but I think it's yeah. I think it's fair with Truffaut to to look at the flaws and the seams with it. I think that that's what makes him an interesting artist is that he's an open book. He's an autobiographical filmmaker in the most literal sense of it, you know, in the most literal sense and also in the, you know, figurative sense that I'm using it in terms of Bride War Black. He didn't murder anyone, nor was he murdered by a lady, obviously. Um, I, I just think that him being an open book and his writings, his film writings being so personal and him being so motivated by the auteur theory. And again, he has that quote that's something like uh, uh, genre noir's movies felt like letters addressed to me. And that's how I received them. I think he wants to be that kind of filmmaker that makes his audience feel like each movie is a letter addressed to them, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think you do get that sense with Bride War Black uh, it's a letter. It's it's personal. It's rambling. It's not. It's rough around the edges. It's not receiving a novel that your friend wrote and being asked to to read it. It's getting a letter that's full of almost desultory thoughts about something. I think yeah. I I just yeah feel like this movie, especially now, would like people would be wanting to see it because of the. <laughs> I mean, it feels feminist, I, I, I guess, to me, but not really. I that that just feels. I'm just going to shut up. I'm. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's unquestionably proto-feminist, or belongs to an era in which feminism had a uh, people attempting to engage with feminist ideas had uh, a different relationship to them. I think that it in its time it was probably received as even more feminist than it is now. Um, uh, It's certainly, you know, a bride rebelling against horrible bachelors and getting sort of the revenge on on that. Um, But it is also traditionally romantic in the way of this woman is defined by her marriage and defined by the loss of her marriage. Although when I watch it, I, I do have the reaction of, Lady, you probably dodged a bullet. Marrying a guy you fell in love with when you were both five does not seem like <laughs> the road to a healthy relationship. It's probably, yeah, you guys probably would have hated each other's stuff. guts when you were 25. <laughs> Can you imagine if you married somebody who was your girlfriend when you were in second grade? How fucking nuts that would be. Um, but I, I do. I, you know, I, I certainly think that Truffaut, like you said, has a sincere interest in women. And I think that that's rare enough in art, especially from this era, that it's easy to smell like the bouquet of feminism on it. Although I I don't necessarily believe on a micro level this film would hold up to a really feminist reading. I think on a macro level of like lady killing dudes who are 
gross creeps does, you know, sound quite feminist. You know, and again, it sounds it sounds like I just described promising young woman in some way with that. Um, mm. But I don't know. I don't know if it is. I don't know if Truffaut is coherently political enough to put forth a feminist thought. I think he's somebody who thinks sincerely about his emotions and his talent as a filmmaker is for sincerity. And I think that it's this movie's weird texture is what if you made a cheapy paid by the world word paid by the minute Cornell Warwich thriller with an incredible amount of sincerity to it. And uh, I think you'd end up with a film like this. My proof is that a film like this exists. But I do think that um, that it's the, the sincerity, I think, also is rare enough to give it an, an at least proto-feminist flavor. Yeah. Oh, the, oh, the only other like French New Wave uh, guy I think think of that I really focus on women. I, I emphasize guy because uh, Farda obviously focused on women. Like, yeah. That's obvious. But it would be Jacques Rivette. And um, not much like what Romer. Romer is incredibly woman focused, yeah. and Chabrol has a lot of movies, especially on that great run in the seventies, that are anchored by woman yeah. women. La Rupture, Les Biches, uh, you know, Story of Women, Violet Noiser, Betty. Tony obviously yeah. is very influenced by women. I mean, well, I he said... just wants to put him in front of the camera the whole time. <laughs> yeah, I said French New Wave. I think. Yeah. How are you defining new wave for this? Are you doing Uh, just the the guys and like a few others? Are you doing like just anything that falls in that, that void of whatever it is, the thousand new filmmakers in 1963? It really comes down to, um, what's easily available. Yeah. So like, like, so try get as much, uh, I mean, it'll be mainly the cash of the cinema people. Yeah. Try and get like the uh, left bank, but some of that stuff is hard to come by. Yeah. Um, and then anything French adjacent from the air, like Jacques Tati, counts yeah. because well, he was around, so why not? Yeah, and good and Godard fucking loves that guy, so it's reasonable enough to to include him. Really, Godard likes something. Godard loves stuff. Godard's, Godard's, you've never heard the Godard quote? The, the, uh, Tati is the father of French neorealism. One of, one of Godard's all time nonsensical statements. <laughs> I, uh, no, I, I get what he's saying and I completely agree. It, it makes so much sense because <laughs> when I, when, uh, that postman one, especially, like, yeah. life is just as absurd as that. So he, I mean, my life is an endless procession of visual gags and extremely dry, droll humor. That's, That's the life I thought I was going to have, and I've been disappointed ever since. It's, you know, you watch a movie like Umberto Day, and you're like, this is so much like Playtime. These mm-hmm. are the fucking twins, twinsies, those little movies. One loaded in each chamber, getting ready to fire in the cinema's face. Um, yeah, no, Godard, Godard loves a lot of stuff. Godard, Godard's 
positive criticism is delightful because there is there is no restraint on his praise, and he says the most ludicrous things you could ever imagine. He called he called La Nuit de Carrefour, Jean Renoir's detective movie based on cinema, on the greatest French adventure movie. It's like what the fuck are you talking about adventure movie? Uh, maybe I, I, he's genre blind. He just. <laughs> Yes, he he invented the the um um uh the the you know that that popular calling things are the wrong genre you know like you know that Alien is a haunted house movie you know that kind of thing did you know the Wild Bunch is a musical you know that popular bullshit comedy exactly exactly you know did you guys know Soft Skin is actually a sports comedy. Anyway. <laughs> I just know Godara kind of like the the grumpy old man who's on like Instagram now. I think it was. No, he's he's the little annoying wiener. He's 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 the easiest comparison is to Tarantino because he's somebody who's an incredible dork who got labeled the coolest person of his generation, and you go what. <laughs> <laughs> And it's and that's completely that's completely uh, Godard. He's 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 such a wiener. He's such a wiener. He's such a Dorcas Malorcas. And then he becomes the coolest guy in the world. Oh, could I have this someone better? <laughs> yeah, very like nice, generous guy. <laughs> oh yeah. But, um. Uh. Part of. Say. Oh. Uh. I have. Like anything real insightful to say about the movie, just kind of superficial things. But like one of the uh, man she kills is Michael Lonsdale. Oh yeah. The whole time I was like, I know that face. I can't know. I can't remember why. And then I was like, Oh, it's Hugo Drax from Moonraker. Holy shit! <laughs> I was gonna say you you recognize him as the guy wearing the assless chaps in uh, Phantom of Liberty. That wasn't where the guy who's getting whipped. <laughs> oh, I didn't realize that was also him. <laughs> Wasn't there an, another like boom metal guy as a Bond villain? Uh, well, there's there's the woman from um, Obscure Object of Desire as a Bond girl in uh, in in fucking you for your eyes only. She's got the crossbow. I can't remember the Bond titles. Oh. I'm sorry, we shouldn't have gone into them. Yeah. Carol Bouquet. Uh, yeah, that was the other one I'm trying to think of. Um, um and uh, like uh, a Jean Moreau. Oh, let me ask you about the Michael Michael Lonsdale scene. Do you guys think it's possible to suffocate in a closet? That seems like a ludicrous <laughs> death method. It feels like a pre-science era. Like, if we just close this closet door and put duct tape on it, he'll die? I don't, I don't think that's even slightly possible. It's an improvement on the book where it's like Play-Doh. Yeah, where they it's putty like, well, it up. Yeah, well, uh, Joel, would you have uh, believed that, that scene more if it was like Play-Doh and not duct tape? Uh, hold on. Okay, sorry. <laughs> uh, uh, no, because I think this is... Uh, I, I doubt they actually tried putting the duct tape over, but you remember back in the day, they were like, in case of a chemical weapon attack, get, put duct tape over your windows. So they were probably, like, just based on that, which probably wouldn't work, uh, they're like, yeah, you could totally seal it off. Yeah. A closet, a, in a wooden closet. You could so under some stairs. 
I just I, I just don't believe that this house is that fucking airtight. Listen, he he lit those matches and that ate up all the oxygen. <laughs> I think there's more oxygen coming in. I think if you cut that room of the house out of the house and threw it in the ocean, that closet would fill up with water for sure. Yeah. It's uh, not it's not airtight. It's a ludicrous idea. Anyway. Do, do they actually yeah. say he suffocated or cuz in I the mean, book he, they do. So I oh, don't okay. I don't know if it's different in the in the I movie. Was in the movie, he could have died of, like, fright or something like that. But, yeah, <laughs> I think it is supposed to be. He died of fright? You were, you were treated to that lack of dubbing. Oh, it's how awful no. to be put in smoke closet. He died of fright? Yeah. Uh, what else? Like, I also was thinking, thinking back on it. Like, why did Truffaut change some of the names? Because, like, Cookie for the kids. Yes. Yeah. And there's the part in the beginning where... They changed Fergus into Fergus. And that that made me think of Crying Game the whole time. Ah, Fergus. <laughs> and there's, like, the part in the beginning where he's, like, talking to his... Uh, the, the guy, Charlie, is like, it wasn't Little Annie or Big Bertha. It's like, you could change some of those names. It, like... Uh, he like, doesn't like, know what to do with America, is what I would say. <laughs> no, for real, is that he inherits all of this stuff and is kind of tenuously trying to figure out what to do with it that it's this movie's half american uh in and and sort of half hollywood half hitchcock in hollywood because it's definitely not a reference to hollywood to, to hitchcock's you know british galmont movies it's it's hollywood hitchcock in some way it's 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 in some strange unreality in some way just even that opening janitor character where I watched that and I'm like, is this what fucking janitors are like in France? What is this supposed to be? This like dude in a beret and Coke bottle glasses and a like scarf being like, oh, let me see if he is here. And it's like, that's the janitor, you know, like I don't, he looks like a fucking Disney character. He looks like a character from the town in Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, I, I, yeah, he made me think of Goofy immediately. So that's that's funny that you said that. He does. He's like, what is this supposed to be? Gorsha, what's your name, lady? <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what he's like. Only in the friends, it's more like, oh, Gorsha, I am the Goofy. I wonder what they call Goofy in French. Either of you guys happen to know that? I, I'm learning French and Duolingo. I'm trying to think, like, what would be French for, for silly? Or, you know, like. I'm not sure. I have to look that up. I don't know how that would be true. He's called Dingo. <laughs> Dingo. I just looked it up. He's called Dingo. Yeah. It's worse. Yeah. It uh, must mean like Dingus. Thing. must be the same root etymology. But uh, there's a brief line during the uh, the um, segment with, um, Lan- with uh, Lansdale where... Uh, there, uh, he mentions like, oh, uh, he could sleep. The uh, uh, cookie can sleep through an earthquake. Yeah. And immediately I was like, I hey, I've done that. I used to live in Alaska, and I did through a couple earthquakes where I was almost uh, hardly injured as a baby. When I was down visiting my parents in Delaware, there was an earthquake down there. It was very strange. This is like yeah. sometime last year. Do you remember that? Uh, yes, I do. I was looking at the uh, lights and being like, why are these lights moving in this house? And you live in an earthquake country, don't you? 
I mean, supposedly. I can't remember the last time we had one, but... Uh, like safe, comparatively? Wait, say that again? Is Ventura on the fault line, the San Andreas? Uh, we're we're very close to it. Uh, but uh, I thought earthquakes were like a common thing in California. I've never I'm, been to California. I'm sure we have small ones all the time. But you know, I, I think I notice one, which is probably going to sound like a lot. Every like every three months, I'll notice one, maybe. Hmm. But it's never. Okay. I when I was when I was in Bogota, there was an earthquake too. It was the, it was that earthquake that hit in Mexico, and we felt it all the way down in Bogota. It's crazy. It was in a hotel. That was that was really strange too, because the cleaning staff freaked the fuck out, and I didn't know what was happening. Mm. Anyway, Cookie's performance is yeah. nice. The little kid, and it and it anticipates um, small change, which he'll make later, which uh, was pocket money. Which is the one that it was at? Pocket Money is the actual title. It gets called Small Change here, and uh, and it's interesting to see him work with a kid like that. It's a very his his working the way he works with child performers is very very interesting. That kid is so incredibly natural. It feels like he's undirected, but knowing how hard it is to get kids to be natural on camera. It's almost a fucking miracle. And then you see him do it mm. for an entire film in Pocket Money. Yeah. And, um, well, I was trying to look up earlier when the uh, Female Prisoner Scorpion manga came out. Because seeing this, uh, watching this movie again, is like, I bet, like, I don't know if this was international or not, but it feels like maybe this inspired, like, that manga or at least the movie series. To some extent, it was a fairly like big this. hit. So I don't, I don't know how much cultural exchange there was between, you know, France and Japan at that point. I, I would be surprised. Yeah. Even Truffaut in his writings almost never writes about Japanese filmmakers. It's it's very rare for to read him write much about about Japanese directors. Yeah, it's just like the like the general plot and like the having like the silent female protagonist this felt like uh you know like uh, either sense or like somehow like uh, or maybe the book was popular in japan or whatever i don't really know yeah i know that that jess franco remakes it like two years later um yeah What's the fucking um, name of that movie? You know what I'm talking about. Uh, yeah, she'd kill an ecstasy. Yeah. I think yeah. one of the few he did with uh, Salva Miranda. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's her name. That seems more likely to have influenced uh, Female Convict Scorpion than, <laughs> than uh, Bride War Black. That I can imagine traveling in some way that I actually can't with Bride War Black. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. I, I, I don't think she talks as much in the book, but I, I kind of remember the highlight from the book, honestly. And uh, in the ending, I kind of uh, erased from my memory because it was so shitty. That's reasonable. You know, I feel like we should even get into just like if you read the book, um, the you can skip the last chapter. You don't really need to need to uh, go through that. <laughs> well. You do, you should read it because it's ludicrous. What I don't understand is why Truffaut comes up with a perfectly 
reasonable solution. Joel, you haven't read the book. What do you think of how the 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 uh, groom gets murdered? What's your reaction to that? Um, it feels ridiculous, but it also doesn't feel on. It doesn't feel like it couldn't happen, but yeah. It just, I mean, it goes along with the whole dark humor of the film, so it doesn't feel like a, a weird thing that that random series of idiots would just accidentally, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, uh, I think you're saying what it is, is it feels like the film's weakest contrivance is how it feels to me. Oh, okay, that's what I meant. <laughs> I, well, no, I feel like you're on the same page with me yeah. with that. But it's But it's such an improvement over the book. I don't understand why he doesn't, have it in the book it should be that they drunkenly uh run him over right because they're a bunch of drinking buddies who have that'd be a lot who are you know getting in in trouble for going out on on sort of drunken rampages in this very small provincial town that feels like a reasonable thing to happen but you know then i picture it as like is that even more ludicrous to picture like this car crashing into a guy on on the church steps and those guys just being like, We gotta get out of here. <laughs> you know? Is that is that even is that even sillier? You know? It's the problem is is that what it needs to be is not an accident. And Woolrich understands that. That's why he comes up with the totally absurd contrivance for the end of it for the end of the book is, is he sort of innately understands it for it to make sense. It needs to not be an accident. Um, but I think Truffaut was also right to identify that it's more compelling if it's not somebody who has it coming in any way, if it's a random trick of fate that ruins her life, I think is more spiritually and morally compelling, uh, that it's just, one of those cruel things that happen in the universe. So now she's going to try and fight back against the inevitable cruelties of existence in a way that she's already lost from the beginning. The battle's already lost from the beginning. You know, she can't bring her husband back. I think it, I think it makes it all um, more spiritually compelling, I think. But I think narrative logic-wise, it's got to be somebody wants to kill him for some reason, you know? Yeah. Oh, I, um, going back to something you said earlier about Truffaut and always trying new things and like this movie kind of being a self-examination of mm -hmm. some, uh, some kind, uh, do you think maybe he is examining himself through, um, the bride character with her being a chameleon and just trying to figure out like her way around to, uh, Oh, her like, trying on different styles constantly. Yeah. That's interesting. I had never thought of it that way. Because then it's like this ultimate, like self self examination of like, like multiple uh, like aspects of of himself. Because like like I, I much really like this movie. It's a weird movie that like ultimately it doesn't really work when you think about it logically. But in the moment, like I'm totally okay with it. I, yeah. It's just it's it's a, it's a satisfying movie to sit through. Until, you know, you think about it and it's like, oh, wait, never mind. This is <laughs> absurd and silly. Well, it Quite needs to be a horror film. 
it, it needs to be a horror film. It needs to survive on its stylishness and operate according to horror film logic is what I really think about it. And they allude to it a few times where they call her an apparition and she's supposed to have a sort of ghostly quality. But Truffaut has no interest in horror movies and I really don't think has any understanding of the genre and any ability to, to conjure it. And, but I think that that would solve all of the problems if it just had the horror film logic to it more completely. You know, sort of there's an awful darkness that is bleeding out into everybody's life. That sort of classic horror film feeling of people are just trying to live their lives. And then there's murder happening inexplicably. There's violence happening inexplicably. It's awful. Here it comes again, right? Mm-hmm. which is basically the only logic to uh, a horror movie, and they work just fine. But I don't, I don't think he has it in him. I don't think he has any interest in horror movies, and I don't think he has any understanding of them, uh, which, is, which is weird in the context of Hitchcock, who uh, obviously was not a horror director with a few exceptions, but I think innately understood how horror functions and brought a lot of horror style uh, and uh, horror artistic strategies to more traditional thrillers, which is what gives his thrillers such big impact, is that that they play with the tenseness and and sort of feverish intensity of horror movies at their best. Um, something like Vertigo feels like a horror movie, but there's but it's not. Um, it's a thriller. Uh, and I think that that's what this movie, needs, but I don't think Truffaut is capable of it. Mm. I think he's interested in something else. I'm trying to think, were there any movies in the French New Wave period at all? No, they don't really like them. Are there any war movies? Well, Eyes with that, I mean, if does that count as French New Wave? Yeah, I don't know if that counts as I mean, it is a horror movie. Well, it is a horror movie. I, I wouldn't God, I mean, how hard am I going to split hairs? I, I don't think of him as a French New Wave director. He's making movies uh-huh. well before the French New Wave starts. Because when is his first one? It's Blood of the Beasts. has got to be in the in the uh, 40s, right? He's, he's mm-hmm. I don't think of him yeah. as a French New Wave director. Uh-huh. And, and Eyes Without a Face is 59? I, I see it. I see it get lumped into that. Yeah, I'm awful places. It's so to grab a handful of well-known directors from the same period and be like, "Yeah, this must be it." Like, I don't know. Nothing about. I don't know. It depends. Again, yeah, it's I like how a face doesn't feel like a French New Wave. Yeah, it's how do you want to define French New yeah. French New Wave kind of thing? Um, he's yeah, definitely I mean, a sort of that. erratic outside the system director. He definitely doesn't belong to the tradition of quality. How about that? Can I uh, <laughs> can I uh, say something real quick? Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sarah from <laughs> we live in a studio apartment with like a stair stair set to a slightly raised thing, and uh, from upstairs Sarah sent me a gif of uh, Anigo Montoya from uh, the Princess Bride. Yeah, <laughs> and it's she said, "I want my husband back, you son of a bitch." <laughs> <laughs> so when that person was like, "I'll give you, we'll give you anything, anything. I want him back," I'm like, oh my god. Oh, exactly. There you go. Oh, and, um, like I feel like if this was made, watching this 
if like if this is made in a similar style, I feel like Isabel Huppert could do something like this. Because mm. whole time I'm I'm thinking like, oh, this is like a Huppert style performance in certain ways. Well, Moreau's really weird casting because she's not ethereal. There's the line in Jewels and Gem of um, what is the what is the exact the exact line? I have it. Well, I can find that. I'm sure I have it written down somewhere. The, you know, she's neither, I don't have it written down anywhere in my fucking notes, where she's not particularly beautiful. She's not a, spe- I can remember it. Let me be frank. She's not especially beautiful or intelligent or sincere, but she is a real woman, right? That's mm-hmm. the line from Jules and Jim about Jean Moreau. She is a real woman. And I think that that's very true about Jean Moreau's screen presence is that she's not ethereal, but then you cast her as this apparition, somebody who needs to be not a real woman. You cast, like, the cinematic embodiment of a real woman. I think Huppert is right, uh, because Huppert is so uh, overtly um, sharp and dangerous feeling when she needs to be. Um, I think that this movie would have worked with somebody um, especially beautiful, you know, like uh, uh, Bridget Bardot, you know, or one of Hitchcock's um, women might have worked. Mm. Although his women are all very naive, he does he does a lot of of naifs and sort of empty empty dresses in a lot of his movies that that don't really do anything but stand around and be beautiful. Maybe maybe that's a a bad mm. thing to pursue in some way. Sandrine Bonaire would have been an interesting casting as well uh who pairs co-star from the ceremony um because she's got a very eerie quality to her when she leans into it she can be quite an unsettling screen presence and an opaque one too i think moreau is is too grounded is too much of a real woman which makes the story again heavier it turns it into again a regular truffaut movie in which people die at the end of scenes <laughs> it's very it's very it's about you know womanizing and being an artist and living a bachelor life and living in shabby apartments and not knowing what you're doing with yourself and meeting an interesting woman who isn't necessarily into you but you're very into her and you know that's all really classic Truffaut stuff and then at the end you die that's 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 the big twist for this one that's what turns it into a thriller All right. Uh, I feel like we're wrapping up, and I forgot to ask you first earlier. Uh, how did you first hear about French New Wave? If you can even remember, how, like oh, the uh, simplest, you, yeah. the simplest way we that you possibly could. I loved Quentin Tarantino in high school. His production company was named Band Apart. I heard it was named after a movie, Band Apart, by Godard, and I went and rented. Uh, band apart and loved it and from there you just go and get you you branch out you watch all the Godard movies you can you watch all the Truffaut movies you can and then you know and I heard that he loved this guy Romer that he was always recommending him in the video store so I sought out Romer's movies which were very hard to find I don't think I found many of them until I was in college Truffaut and Godard were easier to find and then you know you just go from there you watch you know the Chabrol and the Rivette and the Alan Renee and Varda and Eustache and all those things. Yeah, then you also hear stuff like that. You know, Jim Jarmusch loves Jean Eustache, so I got to find this movie. 
you know, uh, the mother and the whore, you know, that, that kind of stuff too is how I came about it. But I, that must've okay. been the first time I really concretely heard of the French new wave was, uh, oh. was from band apart. Oh, the usual answer we've been getting is, um, college film class, breath, uh, breathless. I the, the came into one. my college having seen all of that stuff. And I was very surprised the other film students hadn't seen like a bunch of Rossellini movies already, but I was also lucky. The video store that I went to that had all this was Video Paradiso in Newark, Delaware. Newark, Delaware mm-hmm. is where I would go right by the University of Delaware. And it was excellent video store. Uh, I had to Thank drive you like for saying it. Thanks for saying it the correct way. I always get screwed up because growing up, I heard the correct pronunciation is Newark, like Newark, New Jersey. But in Delaware, they say it wrong. They say it Newark, right? So now in my head, it gets screwed up. I say the one in Delaware isn't the correct way, but it's the one I grew up with. So my memory is like Newark is the correct way and it gets scrambled inside my head. I always have to think for one second to say it correctly. (laughs) But yeah, it was like, we lived out in farm country. It was like a 40 minute drive away to this video store, but I would go and and rent movies from there. And that's, that's how I saw this stuff. But, but even then, like the video store era sucked so bad for trying to find movies. It was just fucking impossible to see stuff. You could only see like the big, the big guns, you know, they had like Breathless and Band of Outsiders and Sympathy for the Devil and, you know, Paralafu. You know, they had open city and, and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Feels very basic stuff to me, which is good. Everybody needs to see the basics. I'm not, not yeah. criticizing this video store, which has been out of business for 10 years. And all right. So, um, uh, if you can find this movie, watch it. Uh, I, uh, wish it was more available because even though it's not Truffaut's best, it's still, it's, it's still like, it's still a, uh, a a good, really solid movie that, despite its its weirdness, I kind of love. I love it for the most part, and I yeah. find this is a very easy, simple watch. And then, like, I I found it hard to take notes during it because it's kind of like oh, I'm just really enjoying watching this movie. And so, like, uh, I don't know if that says anything about this. It's just like it, it's not. Uh, if you make this far and think it's homework, it's not homework. It's a very this easy, like easy breezy, like fun revenge movie. And but it's also a bunch of other stuff too. But uh, you know, uh, uh, track it down. It, 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 I think it is worth the uh, worth the uh, the work to yeah. try get a hold of it. Like a lot of true foam movies, I love it, but I'm very hesitant to recommend it to people. I would say that's most true foam movies. Is that I love it, but I but I would be very hesitant to recommend it. Uh, J Dog, how about you? Oh, I don't I don't think I would have a problem recommending it this particular movie to anyone. Like it, it feels like a a French New Wave genre movie. You know, it's the murder thriller kind of thing. Uh, so I, I I think that's what makes it more easy to watch compared to like uh, the soft skin yeah. where, yeah. where you might just be like, are we going to actually going to get to go anywhere or anything like that? <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, uh, yeah, yeah uh, I just wanted to say if you know where to get movies on the internet, 
that you don't want to buy, then you'll be able to find this movie. Yeah, we keep saying it's hard to find. There's you can get a DVD of it for for like ten that, bucks or whatever. There's a DVD if you want to buy a DVD. I keep once we mentioned the video stores, I've remembered like, oh no, that's what really hard to find means. It doesn't mean I might have to order a DVD if I want to see it. You don't have DVD players anymore. They all have VR helmets and automatic Pez dispensers or whatever. If you can find this movie on Pez, definitely <laughs> get it. Wow. And like to go uh, go off uh, on like this the soft skin. I think it's a really solid movie, except the main problem is the main the guy we follow the whole time is like Harker or Dracula. You could get no Dracula, it's just Harker the whole time. So it's like, <laughs> oh god, this guy's so boring. Mm. Which is the point of the movie? At the same time, it's like, uh, can we get someone with a little more life <laughs> instead? Well, that's the you get you get Francois Dorliac for the life. That's that's the life True. you get in that movie. Yeah, but still, it's Harker with no Dracula. I was like, yeah, come on. I, mean, I love Soft Skin. Yeah. Soft Skin's probably my favorite Truffaut. So yeah. that's that's like one it. I would recommend unbridled to anyone. It's Dr. Jekyll if he never became Mr. Hyde. <laughs> See, I love shit like yeah. that. A movie about yeah. Clark Kent? I'd fucking watch it. No, I'm no, yeah, I'm, I'm that's not I don't mean that to be uh, <laughs> bad about it. As you yeah. said, that was the point of the movie, which makes it pretty good. Yeah. Um, all right. So this is 1968. A lot of stuff came out that year. That was an explosive year for a lot of reasons that we don't have time to fully get into. But uh, a bunch of movies and books came out that year. Do you think so? I was going through the list and feeling like 68 is an off year. That 67 or 69 was just full of movies by and books by filmmakers I love. But that, like, a lot of really important people didn't release shit in 68. That it's a strange off year. Anyway. Um, I had a hard time paring down the movies down to, like, a about two or three. Oh, sure. I mean, I'm looking here at my list, and it's 25 movies. But it's still, like, you know, I felt, I don't know. I went, like, looking for certain filmmakers and certain artists and and. They all they all don't have stuff in 60, 68. <laughs> all took a nap that year. It is. It's strange. I wonder how everything that was happening in France obviously affected the French directors, but I, I, worldwide there was certainly some things going on. All right. Uh, uh, do you want to go uh, first, Chris? Yeah. What do you, and how many? Like, how do you want me to, to do this? Like I said, I, I went through and I sort of didn't um, coherently uh, put this together. I have a bunch of bunch of options for it. Is it just like two or three I should do? Yeah. Because here's what here's what I was thinking is that the it's this is Nagisi uh, Nagisi Nagisa Oshima's year. This is like the most important year in his career. Uh, he has three movies. This boy. No, it's Death by Hanging, Diary of a Shinjuku oh. Shin, Thief, and Three Resurrected Drunkards are all in 68. And these are three of his very best movies. They're three very different movies, too. And they're all 
super like his his career gets made that year. So if you're looking for 68 pairings, like those are the three. But also, you know, I would say that you have the first um, one of the first big acts of the new German cinema, Alexander Klug's uh, Artists Under the Big Top, Perplexed. You know, a lot of times his his Abstract von Yestern in 66 gets cited as the first new German cinema. Artists Under the Big Top, Perplexed is like this really aggressive movie that says new German cinema can like be something insane is another another good movie to watch. Um, you also have the two Chabrol films, uh, Les Biches and Unfaithful Wife, which are two of Chabrol's very, very best. And when Chabrol finally starts becoming Chabrol, uh, I think are great ones to watch. And you have Fukusaku's Black Lizard, which is one of the all-timers. All uh, and, you know, and then you obviously have a ton of, of horror movies and, and interesting countercultural movies that year. You know, the horror movies are like Night of the Living Dead and Spider Baby and, you know, Quiet Place in the Country, even even Seeds, the Andy Milligan movies that year. And then you have mm. then you have a group of um, like countercultural things. You have Petulia, Richard Rutch's Psych Out. Uh, Preminger's Skidoo, Pretty Poison, and Tinto Brass's The Howl are all that year. And those are all like weird countercultural artifacts. They're all basically about the counterculture running into the wall of regular culture and just that, that impact. But the one I would say, if I recommend one... It's the it's the Oshamas and then um, Profound Desire of the Gods, the Imamura movie. That's like the big, that's the best movie from 1968, uh, probably other than, than, I don't even know what, what would be on that. Man Without a Map is very, very good. Um, but I think that that Profound Desire of the Gods and the three Oshama are the best, best movies of that year. Uh, yeah, you got uh, Pink Smoke guys, you really turned me on to Imamura and... Uh... Profound Desire is by far my favorite Immemora. Yeah, and uh, like it, like I only seen it twice, but I, it, it, but like it haunts me still. And yeah, it's just it, it's so beautiful and and, uh, and off putting and hilarious and like the way that only that uh, the way that only Immemora can like be all those things at once. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's like his big statement as a director. And a lot of times when directors make their big statement, it's bloated and not their best movie. But with him, it's absolutely one of his best movies. It's probably not my top, but I could also wake up tomorrow and be like, no, it's definitely his best movie. That could also easily happen. Hmm. Oh, and I want to, and um, um, Bergman's best movie, Shame, is that year also, or my favorite Bergman. It's not Bergman's best movie, but it's my favorite Bergman is another good oh, one okay. from that year. Um, may, um, I'll start with a book. It's a book I read uh, maybe eight years ago, and I didn't fully understand it. I wasn't ready for it, but I still think about it uh, at least you know a, a few times a week. It's mm -hmm. John Brunner, Stand on Zanzibar, mm -hmm. which I guess you'd say is hard sci-fi. Yeah. But, like, it's structured in a very fascinating way, and it's like one of the first like really challenging science fiction books I ever read. And... Mm -hmm. I didn't like, unlike um, like the idiot or um, War and Peace, where I gave up pretty quickly. Like stand on Zanzibar, I was like, I have to get, I have to power through this. What yeah. War and Peace is so much fun. War, <laughs> no, War and Peace is really, it's I really like War and Peace. That disappoints me. 
Anyway, go on. Oh, it's some other Russian novel. I forgot what it was. Why are you like... disappointing the guest? <laughs> I just I feel like its its monumental qualities are really off putting to people, but it's I find it to be like a really there's funny shit in it, and it's a very personal uh, novel. It's weird too. Anyway, well, well at, at the time when I tried to read it, I was like I I could not get through it. Yeah. I, I think I was like seventeen at the time. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably Anyways, too young. What do kids know? Nothing. Get them off my lawn. Uh, but uh, yeah, Stand on Zanzibar. Uh, if you're into like that 60s era science fiction, because at the time I was very dead set. And I'm going to read every Hugo nominated uh, science fiction book from the 60s and 70s. And I did that for maybe a year. And then I was like, I can't keep doing this. I have to read other stuff. That's yeah. So, yeah. I, I got a little out of hand there, but uh, I can't even read all the books I have in my house because I can't. So, and there's not that many. I can't can't make that commitment like you would. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a, there's well, an well, anecdote that Godard would supposedly come into people's. This is Truffaut, I think, is the source of this anecdote and pick up books randomly off of people's bookshelves and read the first and last page. And then Truffaut would catch him later on saying he had read the book. So just do the Godard <laughs> method is what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, and the movies are uh, uh, Mondabi, the Simbin movie. Oh, yeah. Not best. Um, I really like it. It's, uh, I feel like it's a forerunner to Zala. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's Simbin. It's, it, it's a real, it, it's kind of the first, like, that type of movie he's, he'd go on to do because black girl's kind of an outlier mm-hmm. uh, in some ways but uh and when he's coming out on uh, criterion i think by the time uh, i drop this it will actually be out on criterion but uh so it'll actually so but it, it there is a dvd out there uh you just gotta kind of look hard for it uh all right for criterion um but other well, one Oh, and Aoyaku, the female demon. It's kind of a proto pinky violence movie, and it it definitely like sets up like the Lady Snowblood, like female prince yeah. or scorpion type um, template, and it's pretty sadistic. And uh, and it's part of this weird trilogy that is like a lot of those trilogies, totally unconnected from each other, but. Uh, uh, you can find Aoyaku uh, in places. I I highly recommend it. it. It's the best part of that trilogy. The other two are they kind of get goofier, but I like it when it's more mean spirited. And at the end of it, it's like, oh, I feel bad. I I want to like lay down and think about life. But uh, that should be no surprise to anyone that I like the 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 more um, spirited, darker yeah. stuff. But uh. Yeah, uh, Oyaku, the female demon. It's a really good, fun—not uh, fun, but it's a really good, uh, like, um, period piece revenge movie. Uh, Joel, uh, everything I've seen from '68 is the kind of stuff that, if you're listening to the podcast, you probably have seen or know about. I won't surprise anybody if I talk about my favorite movies uh, from that thing. So I'm trying to think of which ones are more unusual and i guess uh, only the other ones that we've done for other podcasts so uh 
last season. You guys, I didn't get to be on this episode, but uh, Spencer recorded an episode on the, the story of a three-day pass. You were on that one. I was on that one. Yeah. That's so funny. I don't remember talking about it at all. I must be mixing it up with something else. Anyways. Uh, you were on the Ivan Dixon episode. Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, so it's it's really good movie. Um, I I don't know what detail I can go into. I just just listen to the other episode. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> uh, the other movie for a different podcast, Please Don't Send Me Outer Space. Once again, Spencer had to butt in to mm-hmm. make us watch Death Laid an Egg. What's Death Laid an Egg? I don't know this one. What What is it? No. I, I don't know it. Uh, Joel? It's it's a kind of giallo, but to call it oh. to call it a giallo, it's not not fair. It's just a, it's a very silly Italian movie about a man in his chicken farm and his two chickens. I mean, ladies, uh, and uh, kind of a mystery, kind of a weird science science fiction thing, and then inevitably some sort of murder get, happens. And You're burying the lead on who the star is. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, the star of the movie is... Jeff Foxworthy. What are you talking about? <laughs> they didn't listen to any of the chickens? <laughs> Come on. It's, it's not Camilla. Uh, oh. No, it's Jean-Louis Tr- uh, Trintignol. Okay. I'm saying it. It's one of the movies. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know who that guy is. The old man from Amour. Oh, I've seen him before in other things. I get yeah. it now. You really don't know who Trenton Yan is? I hardly know who Spencer is. You never seen The Conformist? Uh, what? I, no, I actually haven't seen that. Uh, you never seen Z? Z? I mean, I've seen Z. I've seen And God Created Woman. I've seen Rendezvous, but uh, I still don't know him by name. Hi, he's great. One of one of yeah. cinema's premier creep vibe dudes. <clears throat> uh. He's in. He's he's in a fucking Labicious, One of my recommendations. I'll see. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll get his autograph. Yeah, he's he's still kicking. As of <laughs> is he? Don't yeah, don't jinx that. He's alive. <laughs> don't jinx him. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah he's got to be in his nineties. Amazon Prime. If uh, oh really? Uh huh. How? Probably not check it out, but I'll think about it. <laughs> I think it's fun. It's it's yeah, nothing it's silly. Yeah, if you if you don't like Giallo, you you won't like it. If you don't like Italian movies, which they're, I can definitely see why some people might. Be yeah, I like. don't I don't like Giallo as a <laughs> rule. So yeah, it would have to, it'd have to be a good one for me to get psyched for it. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> just put it on the back burner. And you'll see him, he's in, you're going to have to know him because he's in My Night at Mods, which I've got to assume you guys are doing an episode on. Everyone released one Romare at some point. I, I, I haven't decided which one we're going to do yet. I don't remember. One any. Maurice Scherer. Oh, is that the Romare we're going to do? I don't know. We're going to do at least one. I haven't really, I'm still trying to figure out which one I want to talk about. Okay. He did Back to the Future, right? You guys can just yeah. talk about that. <laughs> That's true. Well, we are going to do the Breathless remake because we have a quota <laughs> to have a Richard Gere episode uh, per season. I kind of like that movie. 
I kind of like the Richard Gere remake. What was Richard Gere in last season? That's Ellen uh, Kit Carson wrote that, right? Oh, yeah. And Richard Gere's in the Curse <laughs> Island movie playing yeah, the half going, Japanese that's man. That's the first season. Yeah, I remember that <laughs> one, obviously. He's now my favorite Japanese actor. So, uh, <clears throat> yeah. what were we talking about? Something actually interesting. I can't remember. <laughs> Death laid an egg, and I decided to take you through Trenton Yon's entire biography, oh, yeah. filmography. That's right. I'll remember him. Don't make fun of me. <laughs> oh, actually, actually, um, next week uh, from this day, we record an episode on a, a Jean-Louis movie where he plays a creep. Oh, yeah? Where? What? Um, the movie, we're going to talk about uh, the Tinto Brass movie <clears throat> and Deadly Sweet. Oh, I haven't seen that one. I, I came to Tinto Brass really late. I hadn't seen any of his movies till like three years ago. Undeadly sweet. Uh, not deadly sweet. It's kind of a shallow little bit. I don't know. It's weird and kooky and fun, and it's like kind of a, a counterculture movie. It's very of its time. Okay, is, it's, uh, are there just going to be a ton of butts in it? Because isn't that what this is? Isn't, isn't that sounds, sounds like Tinto Brass. This is pre but Tinto Brass. This is like. Well, then why was... are we bothering? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> he's, he's, pretty, he's, he's pretty butt intensive fairly quick. <laughs> I don't remember that many butts in the movie. I'm going to make notes. Fascinating guy. It's, yes. it's too bad he has like he has like dementia now and can't really talk about it. Like, he, you can't really talk to him about his movies anymore. I think yeah. it's dementia. Something happened health wise. Where he can't, or he, he's not, because uh, uh, there's a guy, uh, what's the guy's name? A, a writer who's like trying to write a biography on him who said he kind of can't, can't, that kind of can't uh, get any information from him anymore, and the family's being weird about it. Yeah, that's fine. He's got to be old, also. He's He's got to be, it wouldn't surprise me if he was 90, also. He's, he's up there. Anyway, um, this will come. I, I I said that, and then I recommended the the Howl, didn't I, on mine? Uh, yes. But Howl is Howl sixty eight. I don't fucking know what year it is now that I'm thinking about it. But that's also one that there's not a lot of butts in. Anyway, sorry. Go on. <laughs> I guess Salon Kitty would have a lot of butts in it. All right. Uh, yeah. Okay. Salon Kitty is one of this? one of the all time movies. That thing is is something. <laughs> Really, something. Yeah, we well, we were going to talk about uh, butts and Tinto Brass next week with a really fun guest who uh, who's down to talk about that stuff. Yeah, yeah, she's going to come on a bunch of times. Who's the guest? Uh, LB uh, oh. Empire. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know her at all. I just know her as a really interesting Twitter personality. That's my that's my only experience with that human being. Yeah, that'll be a fun one. But uh, th- uh yeah, I, I don't know schedule. But yeah, that will be. This comes out yeah late, so pink smoke wise, what is happening around that time? Uh, in April. What it's March right now. Um, um in April we'll be doing. Uh, the book podcast will be Patricia Highsmith's. Uh, Book of Beastly Murder with Wendy Mays, the great Wendy Mays, 
And um, think, I don't know what the Patreon uh, subscription bonus is that month off the top of my head. I think it's a commentary track for a movie, but I'm not, I'm not sure what it is. Unfortunately, I don't, I don't think months out in advance very well. Unfortunately, we're going to be out partying because COVID's over. We're going to be dancing on Trump's grave. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I almost had something instead. I I have to cut out here. Uh, Let's move on. Um, (laughs) uh, I think by this, uh, uh, check out um, Jailhouse. The Jailhouse 701 Japanese Cult Cinema uh, has something up, maybe I won't, but there's a whole bunch, I think there's 50 reviews up there or something like that. And uh, uh, in the African history one, might have something or might not, but either way, you know, if you haven't read it yet, why not check it out? It's red, black, and green, a celebration of African history. And it's really, uh, the, your, your writing is really great. I recommend people checking it out. Very well researched. Oh, thank you. The research is what takes so much time. It's the hardest thing. Yeah. Some of this shit's like, oh, I have to spend 20 bucks on a new book that will ship in a month? Great. <laughs> have to postpone this topic. But, uh, yeah. Uh, J-Dog, uh, what about you? Uh, as far as I know, at this time period, I don't know if I'll have anything else going on. So, can't really say. Uh, grind, then maybe? Think that will happen? Then? It better. I don't know when they'll air the episode, though. Yeah, it'll have been recorded on your favorite Italian movie? Yes, my the entirety of it, Italian film it can be perfectly summed up in one movie, which is the... Uh, I don't even remember what the title is. Bloody Pit of Horror, I believe. Yes. It's not terror, which would, for some reason, makes more sense to me. It is the Bloody Pit of Horror. Yeah, with uh, Mershka Hargitay's dad. That is correct. Yeah, Mickey Hargitay. And um, it is... uh, Once again, it's a giallo. Apologies. (laughs) But it is ridiculous and... um, I don't know. It's it's so fun to watch, uh, but I'm really looking forward to talking about it. I think everyone else is probably going to like it way less than I do. Uh, I I can't promise I won't do the love guru joke at any point. Nah, that's fine. You know the joke I'm talking about. <laughs> I know exactly the joke you're talking about. <laughs> okay. I have no idea. Okay, well, you I'm you were treated so to the fine. love guru then. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, uh, Chris, uh, it's getting late. Thank you for coming on and you're welcome. Uh, educating us on uh, on a whole bunch of stuff. And uh, you will be back at least more times. I think you picked a Godard and a Antonioni, two of my least two of my least favorites. So, thank you. For, Didn't uh, I get? I feel me. like aren't I doing Belle de Jour? That's that's the that, one that, that I. That was it. It's, it's Belle de Jour. Yeah. I felt like there was one on your list that that really felt up my alley. This is really up my alley. True, Truffaut is really up my alley. But but Boonwell is is the uh, thing I know most. The films of Boonwell. Is Milky Way a French movie technically? 
yes, those are all French movies, the late French okay. movies. Yeah, it's it's oh. one of the Serge Silbermans, isn't it? I think Tristana of the late ones is the only one that isn't. Uh, oh, oh, trust me, you're not. The season is kind of like an excuse for like a uh, like a history, like a, a film, like a film history um, excuse for me to have smart people tell me about like um, French New Wave so I can feel smart. <laughs> well, just let me know then. I will. And uh, J Dog, uh, next time uh, we're going to be talking about Teorama. The maybe one patch lead we cover. I don't feel like doing the other big. It probably will just be Teorama. Yeah. Well, we'll see. We'll see if uh, we're speaking after I watch it. It's not the other one. I, I know you won't like that the other one. What's the I other know. one? <laughs> oh, uh, fuck, what the the last one that what he was murdered for. What, Porcelli or Salo? Salo. Yeah, Salo's not a likable movie, but ah, Salo's really yeah, good. I, I'm not smart enough to discuss um, Salo. I'd rather talk about the... the uh, Terrence Stamp um, one. You guys should do uh, Gospel According to Matthew. That's that's his best movie, and that's an easy one. That's also on Amazon Prime. That one's that one's that one's a a very uh, good intro. Teorama's a great intro to Pasolini, uh, but so is Gospel According to Matthew. Uh, I'm still set on on Teorama. So, uh, anyway, uh, see you guys for that. And, uh, so in the Soleil, uh, episode for this month might drop around the same time too. And, uh, thank you for listening and stop recording. Okay. The show can be found on Twitter at piano player pod. Our email is still high and at gmail.com. You can find a show on Spotify, Podbean, and at various other places where you can find podcasts. Our intro music is by Vivian Fop, and our cover art is by Sarah Roberts. You can find her art, sarahkathleenroberts.com. And thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.